2: I, mean, I thought I would get a couple dozen people agree to do this because it was a big ask. I was saying, hey, I want you to walk away from these technologies for 30 days. I thought a couple dozen of my readers would say, yes, I, I even had plans that oh, I can hang out with. You. I actually <laughs> see how's it going, see how it's going. Uh, and over 1,600 people ended up signing up to do it, which was a sign that, okay, there really is a hunger out there for a change.
3: Welcome to U-Turns, the podcast where we talk about all things transformation and change.
4: I'm Lisa Oz. And I'm Jill Herzig. And um, I am just envisioning our listeners right now with their, you know, earbuds in listening to us. Maybe they're out taking a walk somewhere and they're tapping on their phone to get us going. And, you know, it just sort of reminds me that one of my favorite things about my phone is the ability to listen to podcasts wherever i am. So what what are how about you? You, you are a podcast freak. Well, you so are know, you?
3: I mm, I'm way more picky about the podcasts i listen to than you are. You listen every there is if there is a podcast you've listened to it. I, so. yes,
4: i i range widely. And sometimes i argue with the podcast i'm listening <laughs> to. <laughs> What's your favorite thing about your phone though?
3: Um that i have a soundtrack to my life. So I love having music everywhere, in my car, on my body, in my house. And I love knowing what I'm listening to cuz Shazam has changed my life. I'll be walking in a store and I'll go, "Oh, I love that song."
4: And listeners so by the music. way, Lisa found our theme music. So <laughs> if it gets you going a little bit, you have heard a thing. Yeah.
3: Well, our our guest today is maybe going to put give us some new perspective on both of our our digital addictions. Um, maybe we won't be talking on this podcast. Exactly. You know, no matter what you do based on this conversation, just keep listening to this podcast. Everything else can go out the door. But um, today we are joined by Cal Newport. He is the author of Digital Minimalism. He's the author of m- several books. The latest one is Digital Min- Minimalism Choosing a Focused Life in a Noisy World. Cal, thank you so much for being with us today.
2: Well, thanks for having me. It's my pleasure.
3: So uh, you say it's not the technology, it's how we're letting the technology use us. Can you talk to that a little bit?
2: Well, that's the sense I got when I was out there trying to understand this creeping unease that people seem to be feeling with their digital lives. And if you really talk to people, what they're unhappy about is not matters of utility, So it's not that what they're doing when they're looking at their phone is useless or they don't like it. The the real issue people seem to be having is much more about autonomy, which is this idea that they're looking at their screen more than they know they should, more than they know is healthy to the exclusions of things that they think is more important. That's why people are starting to get uneasy. They feel like they're losing control.
4: And and it's not accidental that we feel this way, right? I mean, in, in your book, you tell this really I thought, mind-blowing story of this guy, Tristan Harris. Can you can you unpack that a little bit for us?
2: Tristan's essentially a whistleblower. Uh, he trained in B.J. Fogg's persuasive technology lab at Stanford, then went to do a startup that was bought by Google, uh, which was all about getting people to spend more time on websites. That was the particular startup he was involved in. And at some point, he essentially had a conversion process at Google. It was like out of a Cameron Crowe screenplay where he wrote this big manifesto that says, we need to respect our users' time and attention. He had gotten tired of the ways in which these products were being engineered to try to get as much use as possible from the users because that was what the uh, the, the revenue stream was. And, you know, Google essentially, they put him into a a position of like chief ethical officer or something like this, but did nothing. So he left and started his own nonprofit and went on the road telling people, hey, this thing in your pocket is not just a gift handed down from the nerd gods. It's engineered to get you looking at it much more than you need to. It is, as he said, in 60 Minutes, like a slot machine in your pocket. And the users need to be aware of this. You
3: talk about some of the ways that it is a slot, like a slot machine, and you talk about the study on pecking pigeons. Can you, can you tell us about yeah, the what study? What pecking pigeons have to
1: do with
2: <laughs> what I'm doing with my phone? Well, this was a famous behavioral psychology study from, I believe, the 1970s. Zeiler was the, the academic who did this, and they were studying rewards and reinforcement. So they had set up this cage with pigeons. Pigeons turn out to be relatively docile research subjects. And if they pecked on a lever, they would get a treat, a food treat, which they liked. And what they found is if every time they pecked on the lever, they got a treat, they would eventually get bored and lose interest. But if they rigged the apparatus so that it was intermittent, sometimes you would hit the lever, you'd get a treat. Sometimes you wouldn't. This somehow seemed to short circuit the dopamine system in the pigeon's brain, and they would relentlessly keep tapping that lever again and again and again. And this was an idea that was first adopted in the human realm, actually in Las Vegas Casino Gambling. When they first moved slot machines from analog devices into electronic devices, where they could control precisely how often you won various rewards, they looked at this experiment, among other places, to try to figure out how do we keep the rewards coming just enough, but not too much, that people keep using the slot machine. That same idea was then adopted in Silicon Valley when the social media companies were saying, how do we get people to look at the phone a lot more? We need our revenue numbers to get up for our IPOs to succeed. And that kicked off this whole reinvention of the social media experience that created this world we're in today, where people look at their phones all the time.
4: So, okay, explain to me a little bit how these technologies are really like slot machines. Like, what is it that we intermittently get that is the reward? Is it is it like the like or the...
2: Well, so it is the like, among other things. Uh, social approval indicators is probably the more broad way to think about it. So social media used to be more static. You would post things about your life. Your friends would post things about their lives. You would read their posts. They would read your posts. The big re-engineering that happened around the time that social media moved to mobile, the reengineering that got people to look at their phones order of magnitudes more is that the experience became now about social approval indicators coming at you through that app. So you click on it, hey, maybe I got a lot of likes for the last thing I posted. Oh, this time I didn't. Oh, this time I got a ton. And they were essentially trying to recreate that pressing the lever and sometimes getting the food pellet and sometimes not. And so it's that indication, that introduction of social approval indicators coming at you at all times through an app on your phone that completely changed not just the social media experience, but completely changed our relationship with those devices.
3: It also changed their, I guess, their revenue model because you talk about the attention economy in social media. Can you explain that and break that down so that we can understand how people are actually making money off of us every time we we go on our social media sites?
2: Well, the model of social media is that they have to monetize your time and attention. So just like an oil company monetizes oil and natural gas and they deploy high technology to get more of that out of the ground, social media companies make uh, their money extracting time and attention from your head. And so they're constantly using technological breakthroughs to figure out how can we get more time and attention out of your head. And so at first, they weren't super serious about this because when you're in startup phase and you have a lot of venture capital, you're just trying to get users. But there was this shift that happened about seven years ago where they had to start to get serious about their revenue numbers, that's where they really got uh, really intense on how do we re-engineer this experience to get people to look at it all the time. So a, a Facebook user today or an Instagram user today is going to look at that account maybe 10 to 15 times more than a Facebook or Instagram user would, let's say, 10 years ago. And that was intentional. I mean, that was essentially the, what they did with the, the social approval indicators was sort of like electronic fracking using some sort of new high technological idea to get a lot more of a resource that they need to extract to make their money.
4: But we are the resource. We,
3: Except for we're
2: the resource.
4: Right. <laughs> Which is kind of scary. Terrifying,
3: actually. Um, we're going to unpack the whole digital minimalism program in a bit, but it seems like the real problem isn't, you know, my app that's Starwalk that shows me the the constellations, but it's really the addictive nature of social media. Is it just social media this problem or is every app on our phone an issue?
2: It's not every app. I mean, essentially what happened is uh, the major social media companies were those who innovated this idea of getting users to look at their phone all the time. Uh, Other apps and services, not all, but others followed that model because it was pretty profitable. But more generally, it just changed our cultural relationship with our phone. So if you go back to 2008 and look at a new iPhone user, they weren't looking at it all the time. That just wasn't our relationship with these devices. That's not the way that we conceived of their role in our life. Today, because of the training that we've received from uh, social media, among other of these highly sticky apps, we're now just used to the notion that our our phone is a constant companion. And then we look at it all the time. So the
4: social media sites are like the gateway drug and then our behavior on all of these other sites, whether it's like, you know, that you've downloaded the Wall Street Journal app on your phone, we are just as compulsive about these other technologies and platforms as we are with social media.
2: Yeah, that's the way I see it, is that the, the smartphone used to be a tool that we deployed to do certain things and did really well. Social media changed the way that we thought about it, and now it's a constant companion. It's something that we're just used to looking at all the time. And once we change that relationship to it, uh, now we're using almost everything on there probably much more frequently than we probably should.
4: And, and so what's the cost? What's the problem with this?
2: Well, there's maybe a couple of costs.
4: Maybe we're super Wait. informed. Hold that
3: thought. <laughs> do not
4: tell us what the cost is. We're going to get to
3: that as soon as we come back. just before the break we were chatting with Cal Newport about digital minimalism and our obsession with our phones and Jill touched on something which was what are we losing what are we sacrificing
4: by spending all of our time because i think most people actually think i'm gaining i'm always up on the news i know what's going on in the twitter sphere i'm really i'm super plugged in i think people honestly feel very good about it a lot of the time so okay so what's the price well
2: there's at least three different major prices people are paying right now. The first is that when you spend almost every down moment looking at the pleasing distraction on your phone, it just takes you away from things that are more important. And this is the classic sort of minimalism trade-off. This is what Thoreau was writing about in Walden. Uh, If you look at the world just in terms of, does this give me any value, you end up in trouble. The key thing is, am I focusing on the things that give me a lot of value? So that's one of the problems. Uh, Two, we have the social snacking phenomenon that psychologists talk about which is you begin to move more of your interactions with other humans to the digital sphere because it's easier. However, we don't get nearly as much satisfaction out of a emoji or saying congrats on an Instagram comment as we do about actually sacrificing uh, time and attention to sit there with someone and strengthen a relationship. So people end up paradoxically lonelier. And third, there seems to be a real cost to banishing every last moment of time alone with your thoughts. So if you have been trained to look at this thing, at every possible moment of boredom. You lose those moments of solitude where you're just sitting there and it's you and it's your thoughts and you're observing the world. We have a lot of evidence that says we're not wired to constantly be in input consumption mode. And when we do that, we get anxious.
4: Mm, okay. So I'm just thinking about the conversation Lisa and I were having before you joined us. You love a soundtrack. I love plugging into podcasts. I And I, I will fill tiny little slivers of time with that. I'll be, you know, I'll be running to the bank and I'll listen to eight minutes of a podcast. But I think what I'm getting from you is that that is, there's something numbing about that and that being able to just be alone, maybe with silence, is that we're losing something by by banishing that.
2: That's what the evidence seems to point towards. Now, we don't want to be alone a lot because that makes us lonely, but we need a regular dose of it. And one way to think about it is when your mind is taking in input from another mind. So listening to a podcast or looking at a Twitter stream or something like this, it's in a sort of all hands on deck mode. Our brain takes very seriously social dynamics. And so when it's uh, thinking about something that was produced by another mind, it's really paying attention to it. It uses a lot of resources. It needs downtime from that. And so if in every free moment, there's a podcast in or a phone in front of your face, your brain never actually gets downtime from this all hands on deck, we're processing input type mode. And so one of the things I recommend, for example, is just do one or two things each day where your phone's not with you. Even that seems to be enough to have a non-trivial effect on people's sense of anxiety.
3: One of the things that I think that that we lose is related to your last book, which was deep work. And if we are constantly being distracted, I would think it would be more difficult to actually do deep work. Can you explain to us what deep work is and how we can get to it?
2: So deep work is my term for when you're focused without distraction on a cognitively demanding task. So you're just giving something full focus for a long amount of time. Uh, There's a lot of reason, the belief that this is very valuable. Uh, So deep work is what allows you to learn hard things. Deep work is what allows you to produce valuable things. Deep work is what you need to foster true creativity. And one of the things that we've observed is that if you get used to spending most of your downtime giving yourself distraction through your phone at the slightest hint of boredom, when it comes time to try to do something deep, even if in that moment you don't have your phone or the internet anywhere near you, your brain has atrophied it's actually going to have a much harder time focusing. Just like if you're an athlete who trains very hard when at the gym, but eats junk food when you're home at night are going to have a hard time when it comes time to perform. And so, yeah, this is a side effect of this this culture of distraction.
4: Yeah, I mean, I, I personally will cop to this completely. I feel like I had a, you know, a fairly, maybe I didn't have like marathon or endurance, but I had real endurance for work that has eroded over time. And I do... You know as as I've engaged with your work, it has definitely um occurred to me that that the correlation is there. It's the more time i am I'm on my phone and I'm not the most addicted person, um even in my household, let alone, let alone you know, the larger world. But it still seems to have had that effect on me. So what if if let's say I'm self-aware enough to see, okay, I'm not doing the deep work that I want to be doing. My attention span is getting more gnat-like by the second. So what do we do? do? How do we fix it?
2: So this comes back to this philosophy of digital minimalism, which is basically taking the ancient idea of minimalism, which has been around since the Stoics, and we can follow a through line from them through Thoreau into the voluntary simplicity movement, into even Marie Kondo today. It's an old idea that applies to lots of different areas of human life. And it basically says you're typically better off focusing your energy on the small number of things that you know are really important, as opposed to trying to spread that energy over every little thing that might bring you some advantage. This is why Marie Kondo, for example, says, take everything out of your closet and only put back in the things that you really want, that you really like, that you really want to wear, right? And so minimalism applied to your digital life is you're essentially doing the same thing. So I think people should essentially clean out the proverbial closet, in this case, their phone. Take off all of these apps and services you have haphazardly downloaded or signed up for. Take a break from it. Figure out what's actually important to you, what you actually want to do with your time, and then rebuild your online life more intentionally. So only add back a tool or service if it gives you a really big win on something you care about and then be comfortable missing out on everything else.
3: So I think a lot of people, myself included, use their phone to avoid feeling bored, um, which is a bad thing because being able to deal with boredom is probably a useful skill. Um, if you can deal with boredom, you'll pass the marshmallow test, which also leads me to think, what the heck are we teaching our kids so that they can't even sit for 30 seconds without some kind of distraction? But you recommend embracing boredom. Um, how does that play out? And and is, is that really—are you bored a lot? <laughs>
2: Well, boredom has a sort of evolutionary function. Like right? we have to think why do we why do we feel this and why is it distasteful? Right. So it actually has a purpose. And and what it's supposed to do is drive us into activities that are more productive for our species and our and our species survival. We're short. Just for certain- more sex,
3: basically. Well, basically <laughs> or something
2: like this. But I mean the types of things that actually uh, The type of things that intuitively or deep down give you a sense of satisfaction or accomplishment. These are sort of the evolutionary answers to what bursts boredom. Now, we've short-circuited that whole system today because we have this, you know, miraculous device that's connected to a a ubiquitous worldwide high-speed internet network that is backed up by servers that billions of dollars have been invested to deliver you just the perfect thing to bust your boredom in that moment on your screen. But none of that existed in our ancestral path. And so boredom is actually useful, not because being bored is good, but because it's supposed to drive us to do the hard things that in the long term are gonna be uh, more satisfying for us, such as actually getting out there and sacrificing on behalf of connections to family, close friends, and communities, or trying to actually take an intention and make it manifest in the world, build something, do something of quality, or to pursue a goal that's difficult or, or to express yourself creatively. And so when we feel boredom, we should be worried about always trying to bust that immediately. We should be thinking, what's the what's the thing I could do now that would bust that boredom that was also around 100 years ago, roughly speaking? And I know that's a, a kind of a rough heuristic, but basically what it comes down to is there's danger in taking something so fundamental and so ancient and dismissing it with something that's incredibly new and high tech.
4: Huh. So we're... We talk about change and the hurdles that keep us all from changing in our lives. And what I'm hearing is that if we could all tolerate um, and stop am- amusing ourselves so endlessly with our devices, if we could all tolerate a little boredom, we might actually um, be able to attack the bigger goals that we have in life. Is that what you've, is that what you've found when you've worked with people on this?
2: That's right. And, and it's why I recommend, you know, that people do this 30 day process. So, so why do I tell people to take 30 days away from most of this optional technology before rebuilding their online life? Like this is different, for example, than in our physical clutter where you can clean your closet over a weekend. The reason why I want people to take 30 days is that that actually gives you time to feel the boredom and have to figure out responses to the boredom that don't involve the technology. So if you spend 30 days without social media or online news or binge-watching streaming media, you're going to feel a lot of boredom. Enough of it that you're eventually going to have to say, well, what can I do instead to get rid of it? And that's when you start to reconnect with the activities you may have forgotten about that can be a much deeper source of satisfaction.
3: When we come back, we're going to unpack that digital declutter a little bit more.
0: This is it, your moment.
3: We've been chatting with Cal Newport, author of Digital Minimalism, Choosing a Focused Life in a Noisy World. And before the break, you were telling us about this digital declutter, which is a 30 day, almost like a detox or a fast from from optional digital technologies. And the reason I wanted to emphasize that um, optional aspect is for someone like Jill, who is working a job where she's got, you know, five people who contact her on WhatsApp and another I've got 30 people who love Slack. I've then, got people
4: who love email. You know, it's it's actually, it's hard. I, I don't actually have a lot of choices about what to engage with. I've got to do it all because different people like different modes. So she's not choosing what she can get rid of.
2: Right. Well, so when it comes to the digital declutter, the, the keywords are optional technologies in your personal life. So there, there's a couple interesting dividing lines here. One, when it comes to technology in the workplace, there's different issues at play. And the declutter is not trying to tackle those. So uh, it, it can't be an excuse not to answer, you know, an email from someone you work with. The, the issues around the email and Slack are big. Right, and so about I,
4: I had to download Slack on my phone and I don't have to feel bad about that.
2: That's At least with respect to this digital declutter. Okay, thank <laughs> there you. Other reasons thank you very much. <laughs> uh, so we're talking about personal life, and then the optional means you know the obvious definition: things you could step away from for thirty days without it causing big trouble. So you know, for example, as I as I talk about in the book, if you use text messaging, that's how your daughter tells you that she's ready to be picked up from school. It's not optional you probably can't step away from that for 30 days. But for most people, most social media is, most online news or other type of web surfing or entertainment online is optional. And for the things that straddle both worlds, uh, we just suggest you put some fences around it. So if you occasionally, let's say, have to go into a particular social media account for work, that shouldn't be an excuse to say, I use it unrestricted during the 30 days. You could put some fence around it. I only do it on my work computer, or it's not on my phone, or I just do it you know, Tuesday night or something like that. So ultimately, it's the things that, uh, are in your personal life and are optional. in the Since they're not vital to your day-to-day functioning, this is what you're stepping away from for 30 days.
4: Okay. And when you, when you put the call out and asked people, you know, will you experiment with me? Will you do this? It sounded like you, you got a lot of interest and people jumped on board. Were you surprised by that?
2: It did. I mean, I thought I would get a couple dozen people agree to do this because it was a big ask. I was saying, hey, I want you to walk away from these technologies for 30 days. I thought a couple dozen of my readers would say, yes, I, I even had plans that, oh, I can hang out with them. I actually <laughs> see how's it going? See how it's going. Uh, and over 1,600 people ended up signing up to do it, which was a sign that, okay, there really is a hunger out there for a change.
3: So I, when I think about what you're talking about, it's funny because I see that at any given era, everything kind of reflects everything else. So the way we approach food actually is not dissim and relationships is not dissimilar from the way we approach our interactions on our phone now. It's all like superficial, quick, easy, pleasurable. Doesn't not a lot of work. But um one of the things that I find with dieting, for example, is that if I try and give up food, just say I'm not gonna eat any carbs, and I haven't planned what I am going to eat, I will go back to carbs in about 45 minutes minutes. So one of the ways that you don't do this digitally is you say we have to have something to replace the digital declutter. When we cut out all the those void. apps, we better have the something else void. to do.
2: Yeah, well, that's crucial. It's why it's why I don't call it a detox, for example, because to me, what's more important about these 30 days than just getting used to not looking at your phone is figuring out the replacement. And that's sort of the whole game here is figuring out, this is what I really want to be doing with my time. So what I found is that the people have a strong answer to that question. Through self-reflection experimentation during the 30 days, they come up with a strong answer to the question of, this is what I want to be doing with my time outside of work. This is what's important. I really value this. And then they put their technology to use, supporting those things that they really care about. That's a recipe for sustainability. The people who instead just tried to white knuckle it, and say, okay, I'm not going to use any of these technologies for 30 days. Oh, it's so hard. They barely would make it past maybe 10 or 15, right? Because it's really, really hard. And just saying, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to spend so much time looking at Instagram. That's not enough to resist the pull. If you instead say, I really want to be doing XYZ with my family and community. That's something that you can really build lasting habits on top of. And so that's why I don't call it a detox, but call it a declutter. The 30 days is less about feeling better. It's more about you need that much time to figure out the answer to the deep question, which is this is what I really care about. And without that answer, it's very hard to have lasting change in these sort of otherwise distracting habits.
4: Okay, so after the 30 days, you add it back in. And from what I'm hearing, you add in the things, the any any tech that supports those goals and values that you've invested in over the 30 days that have that have kind of, swept in to take the place um, and have given you more of a sense of purpose. So how do you how do you avoid not becoming the pecking pigeon again? You know what's what's to keep us from falling right back into those patterns?
2: Well there's a couple things. So one, when you let something back in because it supports a value, you put the fence around it that says how and when you're going to use it. So it's not just that you let something back in. You say, okay, now that I know why I'm letting this back in, it's much easier for me to say, okay, this is how and when I use this particular technology to get the value and minimize the cost. And that really makes a big difference. So I met during... Give, yeah,
4: give, me, give us a couple of hypotheticals because I want to know how real people experience this.
2: Right. So, so one of the concrete examples that came up a lot is that there was sort of an unusual number of visual artists who participated in the declutter the experiment I ran. For them, creative expression is a key value. And Instagram is crucial to this because Instagram is what allows visual artists to expose themselves to work by other artists in their, in their same type of medium or style. And this is incredibly important. If you want to do creative work, you have to expose yourself to lots of other uh, creative inputs, which is why until recently, if you wanted to be an artist, you had to live in a big city so you could go to galleries and see what people were working on. So Instagram has been this great democratizing force for artists. But a lot of the visual artists who went through this process said, okay, Instagram is vital to something I care about. But they put the how and when question around it and said, well, there's no reason for this to be on my phone. Uh, and I don't need to look at this all the time. And actually, if I restrict my who I follow down to, let's say, the 10 artists that are most influential to me, and I have it just on my desktop, and it's something I do on Sunday night, and it takes me 20 minutes to see what they posted that week, I'm getting 99% of the value I care about. And I'm missing where I used to be, which was staring at this phone as a means of distraction busting uh, hours and hours every day. Uh, so that, that's the type of example. You see, another example that came up a lot is there's people whose uh, community, connecting to their community was very important to them. And Facebook groups played a big role. So a lot of, there's a lot of groups that use Facebook groups as their main organizing tool. So what a lot of these people did is said, again, uh, if that's the main value being of Facebook, it doesn't need to be on my phone. I'll access it on my browser. And then more than one of them discovered these browser plugins that allows them to log in the Facebook to check these groups and it automatically scrubs the feed off of the screen. Hmm. All they can see is just the sort of boring logistical post that they really need, which is, oh, we're meeting next week at 9 p.m. So they're getting 99% of the value and avoiding 90% of the cost. And there's also the satisfaction of thwarting Facebook's business model. Uh, I mean, uh, that know, is I, pretty
4: depthless, just just the, how good that feels.
2: People, I call that the attention resistance in the group. There's this whole group that goes really far in using high-tech tools to basically try to screw through the social media. <laughs>
4: right. You are it. not selling my attention.
3: So yeah. Jill and I are easy sells. I mean, we're like already on board. We're yeah, per- you're
4: preaching to the choir here.
3: totally are. But we both have teenage kids. They're not so on board with it, and it's more of an issue for them. If they're not going to do the whole declutter, um, how how do we help people who are younger not just go down the rabbit hole of obsession with their phones?
2: Well, I think in the long term, the culture is going to shift on this. I mean, these phones are very new. Oh, my God,
4: you have hope.
1: (laughs) I I I can't believe
2: this. this. Well, I've, I've been out here researching this topic. I've been looking at the research literature. I've been talking to parents. I've been talking to teenagers. I see a shift happening. And I think long-term, and I'm, long-term, I mean, maybe five years from now, as soon as that, we may see a shift in our culture where we simply say, you know, a 15-year-old just basically should not have access to social media. Just the, the brain can't handle it. In the short term, what do we do, though? The genie's out of the bottle for this current generation that already has phones and already has these services. Well, I've been hearing these success stories, and these might be outliers, but I've been hearing from a lot of teenagers who themselves are getting fed up with this pressure I have to constantly be performing on these digital tools. I have to be keeping these Snapchat streaks alive and posting these things on Instagram and the text messaging at all hours. They're getting sort of exhausted from it. And they're looking for change as well. And so I've heard some success stories where where parents have said, you know, I sat down with my teenager. We talked about this stuff. We talked about, here's what Instagram is doing with your attention. Here's what Snapchat is, you know, how how they're monetizing you. Here's other things that are more important. Surprising number of these people who told me about these stories their teenager's response was, yeah, I'm exhausted too, let's stop using. Hmm. Just There's more people than we think who are just looking for an excuse. The psychologist Jonathan Haidt's been going around talking about some of the psychological data that's pretty distressing about the impact of social media on the adolescent's brain and mental health. But one of the points he makes is that if you want to change the culture, let's say in your son or daughter's school, it's not that you have to get every one of her classmates to stop using social media before she feels like she can do it. What you need is maybe two of her classmates.
4: You need the two most popular
2: <laughs> kids or just in her enough class. That it becomes an option. And then yeah. once it's an option, all the people who are looking for an excuse. And so I'm, I'm a big optimist. Uh, I mean, I'm probably more pessimistic than most people on the negative impact right now. I'm more optimistic than most people than how I think the culture is going to respond to it.
3: So you advocate for a conversation-centric mindset. Can you explain what that is?
2: So one of the things that seems to be emerging from the research literature is that, interaction in the real world where there's an analog component so I can hear your voice and your tonality I can see your body language I can look at uh, the way that minor muscles in your face shift that this gives us something that we don't get with just purely digital interaction that we don't get with just text or emojis or like buttons pressed on a social media platform
4: god I hope that's true (laughs) (laughs) Let's hope so. Go (laughs) ahead.
2: Fortunately, it is true. The problem is uh, not that what we're doing on social media is in itself bad. It's that when it replaces this thing that is really good, we end up much less happy, which is why we see these paradoxical results in the literature where using more social media somehow makes you feel lonelier. It's because the social media is keeping us away from the more important interaction. And so what I advise to people is to think about what you do online in a more logistical sense, but not as a replacement for real interaction. So what you do online might be useful for figuring out a friend is in town. And so maybe you can get together or using text messaging so that you know where you're meeting up with uh, a kid for a meal or something like this. But when it comes to the strength of your relationships, focus almost exclusively on the things you do in person or on the phone that is actually talking with someone hearing their voice focus on those as the actual types of behaviors that are going to strengthen that relationship. Don't Think about what you're doing online as being a sort of equivalent substitute.
4: Okay, so you're using your phone to make the plan, but then you're actually making a plan and you're both showing up for coffee (laughs) and connecting in real life.
2: Yeah, exactly. So technology, new technology is actually great for boosting a lot of these things that for a long time have been very powerful. Text messaging is an incredible boon if you're trying to coordinate with friends. Where we get in trouble is where we use it not to boost the things we know are really important, but to replace them all together.
3: Well, we're both feeling more optimistic for having spoken with you. Cal, thank you so much for being here today.
2: Yeah, thank you.
4: Yes, Cal, thank you. This has definitely given me hope and, and, and freedom. Um, If you want to join the digital declutter movement, go to calnewport.com. Thanks again for joining us. And thanks as always to Alicia Haywood, our producer. So if you want to reach out to us or Alicia, our producer, go to
3: U-Turns Podcast. And do not forget to rate and review if you haven't done so already. Until next time.
5: com.